I think you bring up a good point that obviously China is ascendant, but that doesn't take a, a big brain to understand. I think your smart point is that there are only going to be <laughs> more people fighting giant robots in the future. Like that li- literally seems inevitable. Yes. But I wouldn't have thought of it. Right now, it's just your dad and Mr. Incredible, but once again, I implore you to forget about it. Gonna have a lot of fun. Gonna hit a hum run. And the littlest league possible. In the littlest league possible. Hello, and welcome once again to the Tater Tots Podcast, Book Boys Edition. I'm Tim. And I'm Duncan. And later on, we'll be talking about Jackie Robinson's autobiography written in 1972. I never had it made uh, as told to Alfred Duckett. Uh, Alfred Duckett was his ghostwriter. We'll get to that a little bit later, I imagine. Um, Right off the top, uh, okay, performance on the jumping front, 101 and three quarters inches is not... Uh, it, it's it's returning to my high water mark. Was that your previous high? No, your previous high water mark was one hundred two and a half. One hundred two and a half. But last week it was one hundred one and a half. Was my jump? So it's positive progress since last over last week. And that's I mean that's what we like to see. Yeah, I mean that's all. That's really. That's like the hustle. That's the goal, you know. Eventually, um, you're gonna have to dunk a basketball. I know this, but as of yet, there are no basketball hoops. Uh, period. Right. They've gone extinct. So the, that day we'll have to wait. Once the basketball hoops come back, you might want to maybe start thinking about practicing your basketball skills in addition to your jumping skills. That's a very interesting idea. By the time the basketball hoops come back, I think I'm really going to want to play baseball, though, which is the frustrating bit. Uh, you, you'll have to pull a Jackie Robinson and play both sports. Oh, did he play Jackie basketball? Jackie Robinson in high was the did. first four-letter man at UCLA. Four-letter athlete in UCLA. Yep, yep, yep. Basketball was there in college as well. I forgot that there's footage of him doing layups in the in the Jackie Robinson story, the 1950 film. There's just like there is. He's a good athlete. First, oh, we have to add some int- integer. Oh God, <laughs> you got this. You got this, Tim. <laughs> we have to add some integers to our integral. Uh, yeah, I need. Did I do it? Yeah. Great. I, uh, I I need to say something, and I want to say it on the podcast. I want to stand on the podcast. I do not want to do this. I just want to. I I want to get that cleared up. It's been two weeks. I. Like, I was really interested in, like, the spontaneity of the idea on the last episode. And then when I sat down to do some math, I remembered why I was so excited to never have to do math again. Yeah, math is so freaking hard. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm sorry. So I sat down. um, I did not accomplish as much math over the past two weeks as I wanted to. uh, Partially because... I started on the pre-calculus course that we discovered on the last podcast and yeah. or no sorry on the calculus course like the intro to calculus course that we discovered on the last podcast. I thought it was pre-calculus. It I was I I thought that too. I, I was wrong about that. The class explicitly was designed for people who have taken a calculus class before. Um and although womp, that womp. describes me, 
as someone who is also bad at math, I took the like the placement test, mm-hmm. um, which was supposed to take 20 minutes. And I spent, I think, two hours on the first couple questions. And I said, I think that this class is too difficult for me. So I reached out to Tim and I said, I think we should switch, uh, take a pre-calculus course. And so I did the first several lessons in that class. Um, and it uh, I've also found it challenging, but also very rewarding. Um, I, I, I'm right there with you. Math is very hard. Um, and... But but here here's here's what's interesting about it to me. Okay. Like I said on the last podcast, the way that it works I find really fascinating. I highlighted a couple things from the lessons that I took that I learned in this math class. One of them um, feels like something that I must have learned in school, but I just had no recollection of. Oh, this this proof? Not the proof. Um, this is just a simple thing. It's how to turn. A repeating decimal, so any rational decimal, um, whether repeating or not, into a fraction. Seems like a basic thing, um, but I found it to be such a fascinating technique. You just have to multiply it out um, and then, uh, you know, subtract one from each side. So you get a fraction over 99 um, and you can you can kind of convert things into decimals. Now, I don't feel that I have a full handle on it because there was a question about this on the practice test that I could not get. Um, regardless, I thought that was really cool. It's very interesting. I want to tell my half of the calculus journey, um, which is that around about the time that you were discovering that the, the course that was available on Coursera dot something, um, was not pre-calculus, but was just calculus. Uh, I had not yet made that discovery, although I was reading the kind of like introductory material, like Mm -hmm. from the first thing. Um, I was starting to get that sense when it was like, this is for people. I think he says something like this is for people who have been exposed to calculus before. And I was like, well, that's strike one. Um, and then strike two was like, you're going to have to know what logarithms are. And I have learned what logarithms are in the past. Uh, but I have never retained it. Um, and so I taught my, in the time that it took you to answer the first few questions of the, of the, the placement test or whatever it was, is probably the amount of time that I spent reteaching myself what logarithms were mm-hmm. um um and i'm glad that i i did that because now i know that logarithms are just like another um um, um was uh, the problem is i don't know what the word is like a like operation mm-hmm. it is to like raising a number to an exponent what subtraction is to addition yeah it's the opposite of exponents it's it's the opposite operation as is subtraction addition multiplication division um, which I is, think people I get, have a pretty good understanding of logarithms right now because of COVID. Not me, I know. <clears throat> and and this is the thing, is that it's a fascinating, uh, now that I've learned it, and it seems like a relatively simple concept that I definitely should have known before, um, yet I didn't. Um, but now I do. That's nice. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> That's a good yeah. start. That's something. Uh-huh. I... I don't want to do this. I'm really sorry. Um, what if uh, you just went and found a math class that you could do? Okay. Okay. I'll do geometry. I've always wanted to do better geometry. Yeah. Um, the, in the in the calculus class or the pre-calculus class, um, there was a segment in which the teacher proved the Pythagorean theorem 
by adding squares to the outside of an isosceles triangle, which is a proof that I've seen before. Um, but every time we discuss proofs in math class, I'm struck by them because they're, I mean, they're like everything in math. They're, they're so logical, but they build to a conclusion that feels a lot more satisfying than like, you know, 22.5 centimeters squared. Proofs are very satisfying. I agree with you. It's, it's very kind of comforting to know that like this internal logic exists mm-hmm. and that it's not that there's like logic that underwrites math. I know that that's like, duh, but it's, it is, I agree with you, very satisfying to know that that is the case. Yeah. Um, I was also very proud of uh, the name of the segment that I came up with, add some integers to your integral, which is why I'm, I'm pushing you to keep learning math. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good, uh, it's a very good segment title. I, I will commit myself to learning geometry over these next two weeks, so the segment will survive for at least another episode. Um, but I'm sorry, I really don't like math. No, me neither. Like, or I don't want to say me neither, but it's been very difficult. Just um, just the practice test. I've been like scraping by. You have to get 7 out of 10 to pass, and I've huh. been getting 8 out of 10 um, just on these first two like practice tests. Um, That's pretty good. Which is frustrating. That sounds good. It's okay, but like they're it's not great because I want to understand the concepts, um, right? Because I'm not taking this for credit. Yeah, but um, you understand the concepts. And, uh, eight out of ten. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You. No, I understand eight out of the ten concepts. Oh, I like it. Um, well, I still think I don't know. I still think that like that's a lot. I don't know. I just think that eighty percent understanding is uh, more understanding than a lot of people have. Yeah, I, I just my perspective on this if is I am not paying for the class to get a certificate. I am taking mm-hmm. this class because I want to be a more educated person. Okay. So I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to scrape by is my only point. I want to, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right. I respect that. Thank you. I uh, have spent a lot of, li- of of my life putting a lot of pressure on myself to do well in math classes. Um because it's not something that I'm naturally good at, and I had to work really hard at it for a really long time. Um, yeah. And it was a big relief to not have to work hard at it anymore. Uh, there were so many it, mental phenomena that I recalled trying to do these math problems. This mm-hmm. specific and horrible experience of sitting there feeling like you should understand something but simply can't, mm-hmm. it's something that I don't experience in any other part of my life except for math. Um, just staring at a problem, knowing that there's an answer, and simply being unable to put two and two together. Um, that's a really distinct and frustrating experience. The other thing um, is just being so frustrated with myself that I have to like stand up and pace around the room trying to do a math problem. I've yeah. not had that specific experience in so long, so it's brought back some very unpleasant memories. But it's, it's good to challenge yourself. You're right. You're absolutely right. I think that I've I've shied away from a lot of obstacles in my life that I probably could not have, could have approached better. Um, you're right. I will run into the wall on this one. Have you ever had the opportunity to climb over a big wall like at boot camp? No. Me neither. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to try it. Climbing over a big wall? Yeah. I bet you'd be good at it. You're a good climber. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got a Todd Stove segment, kind of. Uh, uh, there was a tenuous agreement between labor and ownership. 
uh, to activate Major League Baseball yet again. Major League Baseball powers activate, uh, and <clears> there's <throat> just yep, giant robot made of baseballs uh, manifests in the middle of in Central Florida. Um, but <laughs> simultaneously as that was happening, uh, there were big COVID spikes uh, in Florida. I, I leaving I leave it like I there's no there's no. I think we're having it. I don't think it's off. Um, yeah, I do want to correct one thing that you said, which is that there was an agreement between the union and the ownership. There was no agreement. Um, what happened was, as we long suspected, uh, Rob Manfred was forced to unilaterally implement a season. We're going to... The plan is to have a season starting on July 23rd or July 24th um, with spring training starting on Friday. Summer, They're calling it summer camp. Uh, yeah. to be cutesy oh cute yeah that's you know that's gonna soften the blow yeah it's called summer camp presented by camping world oh wonderful that's good um and uh <laughs> yeah all the teams that... had to submit all their rosters and now we're we're going forward despite the fact that nothing seems better and there are a lot more covid cases especially in the places where the baseball is um well i mean baseball's all over the country sure uh there are two teams in both Florida and Texas and California, which are both three, four teams in California. Five teams in California. Is it five Padres. years, right? Yep, 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 yep. You, you, <laughs> I think it's interesting that you assumed that I had forgotten the Padres when actually I had forgotten the Angels. Interesting. That's yep. interesting to me. <laughs> the future 2020 World Series champions. We discussed last time that there was an outbreak at, um, what was it, Philly's camp in Florida. Yes. Yeah. Um. And over the last week, it came out that um, several Rockies, um, including Charlie Blackman, had been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, and the hits just keep on coming. I think that one of the Giants prospects, Hunter uh, Bishop, uh, was revealed he got diagnosed today. And he was at the same party as first round draft pick Spencer Torkelson. Um, so that, you know... This is the reason I put in our show mo- show notes. There is baseball. Maybe, uh, maybe the plan is they are going full steam ahead uh, to restart baseball, despite the fact that uh, COVID cases in the United States are climbing now, um, and a lot of baseball players seem to have it. And uh, uh, if if a lot of them get it, it it could be pretty disastrous. But I think they're going to play baseball regardless. Consequences be damned. I uh, I read today that Mike Leake was sitting out, and that it seemed like it was going to be a pretty popular position for uh, baseball players to sit out. Um, yeah, uh, Joe Ross and Ryan Zimmerman are also going to sit out. I'm surprised that more big money players aren't sitting out, uh, but I guess in a sense they have more to lose. I think I'm what I've noticed so far among the three people who have set out at the time that I had last checked Twitter, which was a couple hours ago, so this could be out of date now, and by the time the podcast comes out, certainly. Yeah. Um, but it seems like based on those three players, it is players who were going to be at the margins of a roster, um, which 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 makes a certain amount of sense. Players who are going to be at the margin of a roster and who live in close proximity to older or immunocompromised people. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that their families, you know. Um, yeah. Oh, that's 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 a big deal. I mean. There's been a lot of attention put on the handful of major leaguers who are cancer survivors, um, which obviously, like, they're in a tough position, but much more common is uh, players with close relationships with grandparents or players like Sean Doolittle, whose wife is immunocompromised. Like, 
those situations are a lot more common. Well, my silver lining is that I um, um, didn't remember to uh, get a refund from my MLB.TV subscription, so that'll get put to use a little bit at least. It's not all is lost. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying. There aren't very many. The other, I, I, I also uh, fully anticipate being a full-throated supporter of whoever uh, wins the World Series this year. I'm going to be out on the front lines defending their legitimacy as World Series champions. Um, yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit over test. I'm like deeply suspicious of anything that happens this season. I'm on the other end. I, I think there are two di- divergent opinions on this, and I think both are valid. Um, one, you say... This is a wacky year, and you got to en- enjoy the ride. Strap in. Um, I say, uh, I can't, I just, I'm feeling very nervous about the idea of this season in which everything is going to be so random as to be nearly meaningless. It feels, it feels really bad to me. I just want to clarify for the listener that we have shifted gears from like, uh, like concerns for player health and now are, are considering the repercussions in a purely sort of baseball sense yeah sorry uh, this is a lot less important um yeah it's the kind yeah, of yeah, issue yeah. With which we concern ourselves um yeah i mean it's just like in terms of record keeping in terms of like how many asterisks are gonna have to be historically like placed on this season um i personally i i'm not uh on the like my, my perspective is not exactly that like it's going to be wacky and you just have to buckle in or whatever. Um, my thought is that um, the players are entitled to all that they can get their hands on. There's extra money involved for them if they if there's a postseason. You can get a ring that you can hawk, and also like you know if you're like a kid who is like a rookie or whatever, and your team wins the world series that i don't feel should be diminished um like your 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 joy should be fully centered you know like having won the world series is a really big deal is that kind of wishy-washy no i i think that's really valid and like what are you gonna say like this this year doesn't count here's what i would have wanted instead of just running at 60 games i would have wanted a full season tournament so this is this entire season existed as a separate kind of entity i'm really into that and the winner of the tournament would still like have a lot of prestige associated with it but it would not be a world series winner but i mean failing that because that that's not what happened um who am i to say like none of this this is this is this is fake baseball fake baseball i don't think that's what you're saying i I understand what you're saying is that it on an aesthetic level it is unsatisfying yeah i i just it sits really poorly with me just knowing the way that baseball operates, you need a really big sample size um, for results to be meaningful. Yeah, and I think that that kind of bears out, like when you think about like early season baseball and like looking at early in the season if somebody has a 500 average, 500 is not a great example. It's a little bit obvious. Someone, but, like, I mean, someone could bat above 400 this season. Yeah, yeah, and that's like someone could break. Uh, uh, what is it, Bob Gibson's? 1.42 ERA record. ERA. Yeah. And um, there is something about that. I think like there's something for me anyways in the, um, I want to be very careful here because again, like I don't want to take away from, you know, like a, a, a good baseball stretch performance is a good baseball stretch performance. And, you know, saying so-and-so has performed this well over 60 games is still a considerable sample size. Um, 
but there is something to be said for the skepticism that comes mm-hmm. with reading like that you're gonna you're gonna regard the statistics that come out of the season with some skepticism i am for better or for worse one of my worries is just like you know when you hear baseball people talk about this they're like well, it's okay. Everyone knows when you're looking back at the 1994 or the 1989 season that that's a strike year, and you automatically make that note in your head. But speaking as a pretty big baseball fan who's not like literally a baseball writer, I don't do that because I don't. I just don't have the context and the incredible attention to detail. If I see a short season yeah. in 1994, I just say, "Oh, they must have been injured," or I don't pay much attention at all. And I'm worried about casual baseball fans in the future who see all these these wacky statistics and it just kind of breaks the the ongoing collection of statistics in baseball which is such an important part of this weird sport. It's very important to be forward thinking and I commend you for that. Thank you. You're welcome. You know who else is forward thinking? Jackie Robinson? Kind of. Not really actually. We'll get into that. I mean, um, I think he oh, he's such an interesting contradictory dude. That's why I'm really excited to talk about this week's uh, 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 Tater Tots Book Club book. Um, uh, it, it reveals the complicated nature of history in a a very unique way and in a very baseball way, um, in a way that's satisfying to me. I think that this book, um, uh, thank you so much for recommending this book, uh, Tim. Uh, the book is Jackie Robinson's autobiography. I never had it made as told to Alfred Duckett. It is like... It's not like a perfect book. It's not like, you know, a page turner or a book that's so insightful or anything like that. But nonetheless, there were parts of it. yeah. But nonetheless, I thought it was an incredibly thought-provoking and interesting read. Yeah, and I highly recommend that you, if you're, you know, interested in baseball, you know, the intersection of race and baseball, particularly at at this time in history. Like, I think it was such a, just such an informative. Uh, book to read right now at least on a surface level like my my main reaction to it um is that we have thoroughly erased jackie robinson's political life and that's kind of a shame i think we should be ashamed of ourselves for that i did not know before i read this book that jackie robinson was a republican i didn't know even yet one thing about jackie robinson as like as a political activist figure which is what he was Absolutely. Um, I mean, most of this book is not concerned with baseball. And after baseball, um, Jackie Robinson mainly concerned himself with politics. But, you know, he was really he was a he was heavily in the public eye. He was, you know, it's not like he was casually involved in politics, working for the NAACP and stuff, which he did. But he had newspaper columns. He went on TV debate shows. Um, He he worked for uh, the New York governor. Nelson Rockefeller, like, really, like, a big political bigwig. Yeah, and none of that c- comes through. And it's just, like, sepia-tone footage of him playing baseball. And in reality, his baseball career lasted, what, like... Ten years. It had to be ten years because um, he made, made the whole thing. Um, yeah. But, like, I feel like... I mean, it's kind of significant that he glossed over that because, like... He's wasn't like a he's not a baseball person really. Like No. He is, obviously. He's in he's in the Hall of Fame for heaven's sake, but like he he started playing baseball because he needed money. Yep. He was in the army and he heard from one of his buddies that the salaries in the Negro leagues were good. 
Um, and so he signed over there to get his 400 bucks a week uh, to support his mom and to try and get married. And that was like really his impetus for doing it. He was he was a sports person more than he was a baseball person. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and like like I think I think there's a way to interpret what we're talking about as being like whatever pure of heart baseball test. Uh, but I think that's immaterial and also might even advance this as a baseball narrative um, because he just like. Yeah, I mean, he had a skill and he applied the skill. That's it. That's like the American dream. I mean, I think the the legacy of Jackie Robinson goes vaguely that this guy was so committed to baseball. He loved baseball so much yeah. uh, that he was willing to turn the other cheek to racism and uh, pave a path forward for other ba- for other uh, black people to, to play baseball. Yeah. When really, it's kind of the opposite story. Jackie Robinson was such a committed civil rights activist um, that he was willing to play baseball despite the racism, which I think is a kind of a subtle but super important twist on on the story that we're told about him. Yeah, and I think you bring up um, how easily... Do you bring this up or did I read this somewhere else about Roy Campanella? I brought that up. Yeah, how easily... Because he and Roy Campanella and um, uh, Don Newcomb were all signed at around the same time. Um, so, I mean, Jackie was the first to break the color barrier, but like he was contemporaries and teammates of Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella, who are also, uh, black baseball players. One of the sort of sub threads of Jackie's autobiography, Jackie Robinson's autobiography, uh, is this kind of conflict that he has with Roy Campanella, who would just kind of rather not deal with any of the politics of it, um, and would rather just kind of like go along with what he was being asked to do so that he could, you know, whatever, like, make his money. You make a good point that it could have been, like, it could have very easily been Roy Campanella who broke the color barrier, and then it might not have been. And Jackie Robinson is, like, very respectful of him. One of the things that characterizes Jackie Robinson throughout this autobiography is his respect for people with whom he disagrees, which I think is incredibly commendable. Jackie Robinson respects that position. He disagrees with it, although, obviously. And, yeah, I think you. it's a good point that, it, it could have very easily been someone who wasn't interested in being an activist about it. And uh, above all, what Jackie Robinson was when it was an activist. Well, and it, it's just so interesting that, that yeah. his story gets told backwards like that. When if it was Roy Campanella at first, that would have been an accurate story. A guy who really seemed to love baseball and was really dedicated to putting his head down. But yeah. Jackie Robinson was the opposite. Like this nonviolence principle was n- not his. <laughs> um, this is, you know, as famously depicted, um, Branch Rickey, had this idea yeah. of the way that he had to behave. And it was like, per <laughs> Robinson's telling, absolute news to him. Um, like, he describes in the book, like, a lot of occasions when he seemed to get really, really angry. Like, he seemed to have a very quick temper. And so this this idea of, of being such a pacifist is, is really uh, very different than Jackie Robinson's identity. And further... Um, after a couple of years, Branch Rickey uh, talks to Jackie Robinson and he says, there are enough black players in the major leagues now. You don't have to do this anymore. Right. Um, and he immediately flipped the switch. This is another part of the story that I just had not heard before. And he got into fights with columnists and he was vocal. Like he he was he he only played that part of the mythical Jackie Robinson for, I think, two or three years. But that's the part that's that's blown up so much in our culture. 
I think that that's a, I think that having read this kind of opened my eyes and I, I, I had had my skepticism of like quote unquote Jackie Robinson day and like what it represented. I've had that for a while now, not too long ago, the pirates had like an essay contest for Jackie Robinson day and they, um, the winner was just like some like white kid from suburban Pittsburgh and now that the kid, I don't know, maybe he wrote like a very good essay, but it seemed to kind of miss the point in a meaningful way and in a way that made me think maybe the spirit of this celebration is being obscured from us. And it seems like that is the case. It seems like we don't talk about what it meant for Jackie Robinson to be a Republican uh, in the early 60s. Um, We don't talk about the way he talks about uh, the national anthem as evidenced by the fact that like when Colin Kaepernick did what he did, we were outraged as though this had no precedent, as though Jackie Robinson didn't also have mixed feelings about the national anthem being played at sporting events. Um, Yeah. He was a very complicated political figure, and I'm glad that you referred to him primarily as an activist because that's what he was, and like that's what at long last sets him apart from the Roy Campanellas of the world is that he was active um, when he was allowed to be. Uh, which is another sort of controversial bit of his early history. Although it, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that it was entirely necessary. But to Branch Rickey's credit, it does seem to have worked. Yeah, um, I don't know. You know, there's discussion in in the book, and this is more widely known about the discrimination that he faced in the early part of his career. I mean, it, it does seem greatly to his benefit that he was unwilling to fight um you know just you can just imagine the way it might have played out if he had responded to violence with violence it could have gone really badly it's not fair that he had to do it this way but i think there is a lot of wisdom in the approach that that he and ricky took and it's you know i i'm glad i guess that so many black players came into the league so quickly after robinson Mm. uh, that it made that you know, less necessary for for so long. That sentence didn't really make sense, but you know, it, it. It Robinson talks a lot about the economics of him coming to the league. Uh, that really, it was all driven by the idea that you know, if you can get black people to come uh, to watch baseball, uh, you're going to make more money, and that proved immediately true. Um, and that changed the culture of the game really quickly. The, the approach is interesting. It, 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 it does kind of, the, the optics of it aren't great. And like, there's a, a chapter um, about Jackie Robinson's relationship to Malcolm X, uh, where Malcolm X is very critical of uh, the optics of Jackie Robinson's feet. Um, yeah. Malcolm criticized it. Uh, like he's he basically criticized Jackie Robinson for being like at the, whatever, like beck and call of uh, Brent Tricky and like white, upper management and i i have a lot to say about malcolm x and his relationship to jackie robinson first off like like primarily my point is that uh it's like historically savvy i think of branch ricky and jackie robinson because jackie robinson had to it takes two to tango and he like the other point that i want to make is that i think that the fact like like i think that that his sort of prudence in this matter could and should foreshadow his success in business and politics. Like he understands how to engage with the media, which is going to become history. Um, mm-hmm. 
and like understands that like and again this is something that came to me when you mentioned that like this is a part of the story that's very well known um is the fact that like he was the subject of like a lot of hatred a lot of uh very clear discrimination and and you know segregation like that part of the story is very well known and that i think is not by accident um like that is like that's the point of asking him to have the guts not to fight back is is so that the history could be written as it was and so that there could be no question that like those people were in the wrong it makes it a very easy story to tell yeah it's the philosophy of nonviolent protest it's it's why that philosophy works i think like that's that's why martin luther king was successful yeah robinson talks i mean he talks a lot about civil rights in the book and he does talk about his relationships with um martin luther king and malcolm x as equals like i mean again like it's just like his activism put him on the same footing as as king and malcolm um they communicated with each other about their activist philosophies yeah absolutely i mean and unsurprisingly um robinson was a big uh, backer of Martin Luther King, and he makes a lot of. He, it's interesting that the way he refers to Malcolm X throughout the book, he always says, "You know, I disagreed with Malcolm X in a lot of ways, except for in this specific way." Um, I don't think in the book he ever really gets into, except perhaps when he's talking about. Um, there's 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 one passage when he describes criticisms of himself as um, what you were saying at the beck and call of various white men, not just Branch Rickey, mm-hmm. uh, but also the CEO of Chuck Full of Nuts. Um, and he disagreed with Malcolm X in that characterization. But other than that, he frequently refers to him and says, oh, I disagree with him in many ways, but I do think that he was smart on this and that point. Yeah, I so I, th- I found that interesting. The reason that I want to forgive him a little bit for being vague on his criticism of Malcolm X is that I think that that perspective that Malcolm X was wrong was like taken for granted at the time. Um, and like he could be safe in being understood that like among people who were for civil rights and like among the people who is his audience, it would have been just like understood that Malcolm X was not entirely in the right in a way that I, in an interesting way that I think that present day political commentators and specifically athletes would have to be more careful about and would have to like give Malcolm X more credit. There's a quote by um, uh, Stokely Carmichael, who was kind of like a post Malcolm X post MLK um, black activist. I think he was associated with the black Panthers, but I don't remember how directly Um, who like his criticism of, of nonviolent activism was that it only works if your um, opponent has a conscience. And he said that America doesn't have a conscience, which is a harsh criticism at the time. But I think that given all the things that have happened in the meantime, the kind of cynicism that uh, civil, like modern day civil rights movements are built on it more resembles that opinion um, in a way where we have to kind of be more actively engaged with Malcolm X than Jackie Robinson had the luxury of not being. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think what you said reminded me of something that was a really interesting through line in the book, which is that uh, Robinson wrote this at a specific point in his life, which happened to be the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, He died pretty young of a combination of heart failure and diabetes. I think that he was in his uh, mid-50s. This book was published in 1974, and he died that same year. 72. Um, 72, thank you. 
that he changes his philosophy throughout his life, which is absolutely normal. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the book is told through that lens, describing his position at the time. And in general, I think that toward the end of his life, he became more radical on issues surrounding black liberation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, notably when he's talking about his disagreement with Martin Luther King on Vietnam, he says that if he were to rewrite the column now, he could not dispute Martin Luther King that America leads the world in violence. And and I, I think that that kind of changing philosophy shines through a lot of the writing on civil rights and Martin Luther King. So he is, you know, he's very honest about his emotional state and his thoughts at all these points throughout his life. And I think sometimes it gets a little bit muddy. It's hard to tell what's him, you know, at the time that he's dictating the book and him at the time that he's describing which leads into another thing that I think kind of colors the book, which is that, um, as we mentioned, this is his story as told to his collaborator, Alfred Duckett. I have no idea how much of an influence Duckett had on the writing of his book, like whether this was just a verbatim transcription or he took a lot of liberties. But I think it's really notable that Alfred Duckett was a collaborator of Martin Luther King's. He had a big part in the I Have a Dream speech um, and a lot of his other speeches, um, so especially topics surrounding Martin Luther King and civil rights um, seem pretty likely to be colored by the fact that, that he was writing this book. That's an interesting point, and it's certainly difficult to ignore, like, given our, our perspective on it. Like, we have to engage with the fact that, like, Jackie Robinson was not the sole author of this account. He mentions in that exchange with King about Vietnam that Al Duckett has been his ghostwriter for like ever in fact wrote the column that jackie robinson wrote criticizing martin luther king's perspective on uh vietnam and there is a moment in the autobiography where like al duckett talks about al duckett <laughs> yeah he says like you know al duckett worked for martin luther king and wrote the speech and had you know whatever conflicting something or other but like he has always been really faithful and i trust him to like not mess with my ideas as they come out um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how to engage with it. I'm not a historian, um, but it is, you're, you're making an interesting point, which is that Al Duckett certainly had a say in how this came out and, uh, may or may not have been journalistically compromised. One thing that I want to say about biography as a genre as a whole is that, like, if a person has an interesting life, it's really hard not to enjoy their biography, especially if they wrote it themselves. Yeah. Um, that's just, I don't know, that's a general feeling that I have. I want to talk more about the, like, dynamic nature of the thinking of historical, pe like, figures. Um, because I think it's a really interesting theme throughout. Um, it's sort of the, like, it's sort of very crucial to studies of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. At least it was at the time that I took a class on the two figures. Um, that, like, thesis of the class was that, like, as they inch closer to the ends, like as, as, as they neared the ends of their lives, they came towards each other philosophically. Mm -hmm. um, King becoming more like economically engaged and radicalized. Um, and Malcolm X sort of embracing the universalism of his movement um, and not like limiting himself to uh, so like a whatever kind of like purity test. The same is true of Jackie Robinson. Uh, he talks a lot about his sort of relationship to uh, his political party, which is, uh, and I believe has been for his entire life, uh, been a Republican. I don't think he ever actually formally 
became a Democrat at any point. He he uh, campaigned for uh, Hubert Humphrey. Yeah, yeah, he did. And um, what was interesting to me, because like one thing that, as I was reading about it, and I was very interested in that section of the book because that sort of like turning point for the Republican Party is not something that I'm like, I don't have a grasp on that. Mm-hmm. on how that party has changed and like at what point the party became sort of the precursor to what it is right now. Um, and for Jackie Robinson, it seems that that is Goldwater. That's 1964, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, be- because in 60, he was like, I endorse, endorse Nixon. Like, mm-hmm. um, And he's very open about the fact that he feels that, that was a mistake, uh, even in 1972. But again, like 1964 happened. Like, that's the point. Yeah. Um, uh, that was a topic that interested me, something that I wanted to learn more about. Uh, so I looked up a YouTube video of Barry Goldwater. Like, I just looked up Barry Goldwater on YouTube because I don't know anything about him. I, I don't even know what he looks like. Um, uh, and what I came across was an interview. He did an interview on, like, ABC 2020, that, like, news magazine program. Okay, so this interview takes place. It's contemporary with Don't Ask, Don't Tell because it is, like, primarily focused on the ways that Barry Goldwater has, like, fundamentally changed politically since like in the 30 years since he was the nominee. Um, and so in this interview, Barry Goldwater talks about how like uh, he doesn't agree with don't ask, don't, don't ask, don't tell because gay people should be allowed to be open in the military. He is uh, pro-choice. He is uh, very virulently um, in favor of a, a separation between church and state. A, he's like, he specifically calls out the religious right. He's like, they're evil. They're like, don't trust them. Um and uh, careerism in Congress. Um, and this is like a, a change over 30 years of Barry Goldwater, who's quote unquote, Mr. Conservative, like the guy who brought the Republican Party. I didn't know into, about this transformation late in his life. I did not, like, I didn't know anything about him except for that he's like the avatar for like, you know, white power Republicanism. Um, yeah. And I had no, no idea about this. And I just like, it was like the icing on the cake for me. Cause like, I had already been thinking about how, like, our relationship to Malcolm X has changed over the years, and we have to, like, you know, give more credence to his point of view, because he's kind of been proven right over time. Um, But also, like, the person that Jackie Robinson was like, this guy's it, like, he's the red X, he's where I draw the line, kind of, like, came back towards whatever, like, morality or, like, a decency. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't know, it just, you know, goes to show that history is a dynamic thing, and it's not, like, the, the... the my main frustration coming away from this reading um is that we are given a very static image of who Jackie Robinson is um and in reality Jackie Robinson did a lot of uh changing um yeah as like a thinking person yeah um and there's like a lot to be gained from that just like there's a lot to be gained from like the learning that Martin King made and the learning that Malcolm X made the changes that they made as thinkers cuz like that's why they're famous is for being thinkers and like we do them a disservice i think by simplifying uh, their uh, legacies yeah to like little bite-sized consumable and like we have this idea of who they are and that's it he also had a very tragic personal narrative uh that came at the end of the book the last few chapters deal with his son's uh fight with addiction his eventually like it's what seemed like a successful fight with addiction only to uh, be cut down in a car accident uh, another part of his life I had no idea about, but it was just like very moving. I read that like I I, I needed to like sit down after I read that chapter and kind of like sit with that. That was a very tough thing to read. 
incredibly sad. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of Jackie Robinson in the book, he tells the story of his life, like kind of chronologically, um, not entirely. He'll move back and forth a little bit to tell the summation of a story in certain chapters, but he keeps hitting on his son, also named Jackie Robinson, and the ways that he was dissatisfied in school um, or, you know, wasn't he was he was feeling bad or having troubles and stuff. It was often very vague um, throughout the course of the novel, and it gets more and more detailed toward the end. Um, until he starts telling this deeply personal story about how he got into not just drugs, but like um, j- just all kinds of criminal activity, including being involved in the sex trade and theft. Um, it sounds like he, he he was in a very, very bad place. Yeah, he had, he had very bad uh, addiction to not just heroin, but a lot of drugs. Um, and he got put in in what sounds like a, a, a terrible rehab facility um, that I, I don't know how it's looked upon today. Um, it sounds like the kind of thing that that may be out of date, um, but for whatever it's worth, it seemed to work really well uh, for Jackie Robinson Jr., who really did get cleaned up after his experiences. And that drove him into social work. He kept working with this institution, Daybrook, um, and started working um to arrange fundraisers for it um, and doing a lot of good for his community. Um, and then he was promptly killed in a car crash. It was, it, was, it, was, it was genuinely very, very heartfelt and incredibly sad. He did, a lot, he did justice to it. Like, I mean, there's a way to tell that story to like, very much protect yourself, um, especially because like, like, this is only written in 71, and so that, you know, it's, it's, it's fresh. It was very recent, yeah. Um, and like it's a very well told account of like like he's so generous to his family in general I think and like telling their stories as well. Another thing I did not know was that his wife was a professor at Yale uh, in mm-hmm. um, nursing and yeah. um, was like got her master's in like psychiatric nursing uh, and was just like a very impressive and successful figure in her own field. Um, another thing that's not talked about in his story and uh, like this also is like. The like the enduring quote that comes out of this biography that is uh, that's yanked out for every occasion um, related to Jackie Robinson is uh, in the last chapter, which is the epilogue. He says like a life. He says like a life is only uh, a life is not important except uh, in the impact that it has on other lives. Right, that's um, that's the thesis of, or that that's the reason that the book is called "I Never Had It Made." I never had it made. Yeah, um, but it's also like I I have to like consider it as like a driving force for why he would want to tell his son's story in such detail. Because like if it had just been like tragic and again like this is something that he could have really protected himself from having to talk about. This is his autobiography. Um, and he chose to tell the story the way that he told it in a way that was like very affecting, I think because like, or at least for me, it did like, it made his son's life have value to me. Who's an absolute stranger to him. Um, but like, it made me understand cause like what you're talking about, about like his rehab, um, program being tough. Um, and I, I also am not familiar with how like that praxis has changed so i don't i don't know if it is actually approved of in 
by modern day standards, maybe something has changed, but um, it was all about like accountability and like ex addicts holding addicts accountable, which seems like, I mean, they're really tough and like they had to train Jackie Robinson Jr.'s parents um, on how to like basically turn him away when he asked Mm -hmm. them for help. And like it, 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 they taught them to prepare for the inevitability that he might find rehabilitation from his addiction to be too difficult and would want to like quit and like go back to them supporting him. Um, And like the advice that was given to them by the people in the rehab center was to turn him away and to say like, if you come home, like we're going to call the police, like this isn't a safe place for you. Um, That's like a really like, and he says as much, like it's a really, really tough thing for a parent to have to do. Um, And it worked uh, in a really effective, in a way that like not only got him to a place where he was sober, but also in a way that made him want to continue with it. Like you were talking about, like he under, he came to understand in a very intimate way, how effective it can be to be in community with people who have had the same experiences as you have and how valuable those people's insights can be as having overcome what you're trying to overcome. And it, it was tough. And they, like, you know, they asked him to, like, just, like, sit on a stool for hours, like, without doing anything. Mm-hmm. And, like, asked him to just, like, clean toilets and do, like, really menial work um, in the name of getting himself clean. Which is, you know, that's unpleasant. It sounds like you wouldn't want to do it. But, like, you also wouldn't want to be addicted to drugs. So I don't know. I don't know from from whether or not it's approved of. Um like it, it has demonstrated value. It affected us as readers. Um, the program that he went through convinced me that it could work because Jackie Robinson told the story of it working on his son very well. Um, and in fact, like allowed his son to tell part of the story himself. You get to read like uh, testimony from uh, uh, his son's like appearing before a subcommittee in Congress or something like that um, regarding uh, how the Veterans Association treats veterans who are addicted to drugs mm-hmm. and criticizing them i mean like i it's it was it, his son's a very powerful figure to me like coming out of this book i i like really admire his son and like good on him for writing that it's also good on al duckett for for writing that but it's very moving yeah i think i one of the things that i really admire about the entire autobiography is the emotional honesty of it um and that's mm-hmm. really the crux of it is his telling the story about his son And I also agree that it's remarkable how much um, Jackie Robinson Jr. was able to accomplish in just a few years. Um, He was was really only out of treatment for, I think, two or three years before he died. And you're right, he he testified to Congress and he um, established uh, this fundraiser. He did a lot of really excellent work in a very short time. Um, and it is, it's a really powerful section of this book. Um, the last thing I want to say about his son is that, um, I think it's really cool that he like came to understand like the difficulties that his son went through as like a son of a celebrity and like talked very kind of intelligently or like empathetically about like, just like living up to what his dad was. And I think that it's striking. And again, like that's him telling the story. You don't actually know what was happening in his son's mind. Um, but it would seem that like he did have a lot, like a lot of work to do to like understand who he was as a person and like 
completely like build his identity from scratch given that his father's identity was so impressive and that's like kind of a lot of pressure um and then like what ultimately comes out of it is that he does have that same like sort of very noble and philanthropic streak where he's just like doing the right things for the right reasons because he cares about people and because the life is only uh life doesn't matter except in the impact it has on other lives like that philosophy is present and i think that that's also very powerful you touched on this earlier when you were saying what the impact of it was but jackie robinson kind of ends the book with this overture to saying he refuses to say that he ever has it made uh despite his tremendous success because he feels such a profound sense of obligation to the black community in america um that Mm -hmm. until racism is eradicated like he cannot feel that he has it made because it is a fundamental part of himself um to see himself as part of this community that is uh still persecuted um he also at the end of the book tries to um tie in a couple of of other prejudices uh which i thought was a little bit under unearned but you know uh i I, you know go for it he's (laughs) he's doing the best he can and honestly like I think a lot of this, um, if you read it contemporaneously, uh, you would probably be more familiar with his other political work. Um, And I would guess that in a lot of his columns, he wrote more about poverty and hunger and sexism. Um, But it did seem to come a little bit out of nowhere at the end of this book. Um, But either way, I um, think it was an interesting choice uh, to structure this book this way. And And honestly, that ties back to most of this discussion and the way this book would have really easily been something a little bit more like uh, the biopic he starred in, a story of his baseball career, and it ended up being mostly a book about civil rights. Excellent transition. Yeah. Well-told story by Jackie Robinson, uh, uh, a very detailed and comprehensive account of his life, unlike the film that we have both watched at this point, the Jackie Robinson story, which was released in 1950 and starred Jackie Robinson uh, as a three-year veteran of Major League Baseball, um, which is mostly fictionalized, I feel. I, uh, I just get that sense. Uh, uh, no, I, I, I don't think it's that bad. I think that it cuts a lot of corners, like it takes a lot of shortcuts, but I don't think it's very fictionalized i mean having just read the book i think most of it comes straight out of his accounts in some ways it comes very close to his accounts like word for word which is really interesting considering uh that he made this movie 20 plus years before he wrote the book yeah that's a good point i think i think maybe maybe the better word is shortcuts because there are kind of some conveniences that are taken like um the the like one scene in which he discovers that he loves baseball as a boy where he's just like I don't even know, because I don't even bother. He's just like, there are a bunch of children who run onto a baseball field, and then two adults stand at home plate, and one of them is the catcher, and one of them is hitting ground balls to, like, what must be just, like, random children, because he's standing there, and then he's like, can you hit me one? And they're like, who is this strange boy? And they're like, why don't you have a baseball glove? And they're like, you're great at baseball. Be Jackie Robinson now. Um... Which the beginning of this odd. movie, the beginning <laughs> of this movie is one of the worst things I've ever watched. Um, this is so this weird. is I, th- this is a really interesting movie too, and I kind of watched it. Jackie Robinson rips it in the book, and he only spends like two paragraphs on it, which is interesting because he actually starred in this movie about himself, um, which is a weird thing to do. 
Um, yeah, I thought it was going to be terrible. <laughs> and in many ways, it was terrible. Um, but it got good toward the end, which I really didn't expect, or at least I thought it did. But there are certain scenes, and the movie does itself no favors by opening on that scene, which is so bad. Um, that it's just odd. feel like they feel like worse than a college like film, like just wacky. There are some Thoughtless. terrible actors in the film. Another another My- scene that happens right toward the beginning that really stood out to me is that <laughs> there's this scene in like the UCLA something. There are two guys and they're like, oh, there's this kid. See, he's good at sports. Only one problem. He's black. Um, and there's one character who's leaning like at a 45 degree angle over the other character. <laughs> um, just the staging is terrible. The acting is terrible. And then at the end, he's like, the only colors I care about are blue and yellow. That's UCLA colors. Um, just e- everything at the start of this movie, just uh, just a lot of poor choices in a row. That guy, the guy who says the only colors I care about are blue and yellow. He was asleep. Uh, was what? He was just clearly asleep while filming the scene. He was Jackie Robinson's real life college football coach, Bill Spaulding. He played himself in a cameo appearance. <laughs> It's okay. so weird. That is that's so helpful. That explains why he was the worst actor I've ever or seen. The worst actor in the movie is because I don't understand why this like it's already a stunt cast to be like we're going to get you Jackie Robinson who's like in 1950 he was 31 years old and we're going to get you to play yourself starring at, starting at age 16. Like Yep. Uh, <laughs> But, like, beyond that, to be, like, we're going to shoot exactly one scene explaining, like, how, like, who is responsible for bringing you into college, and we're going to cast the person who was responsible for bringing you into, not responsible, but, like, you know, your, like, college mentor is going to be in this movie also for one scene, and he's going to have some (laughs) weird speech to make about how great UCLA is or whatever. Oh, Um, so bad. (laughs) The other thing, uh, that the one thing that I wanted to raise earlier in the podcast that I kind of held back... Uh, for now, um, is the amount of transition by, like, not even, like, the specific kind of fade transition that is, like, time is passing because we're taking days off of a calendar, and it's so long. It's the single (laughs) longest It's at the beginning of the movie. There's the one scene where he's a boy, and he goes... I want to catch a baseball. And they're like, this is the greatest kid in the world. And then they, they do the calendar thing. Yeah. For, for so like long. eight minutes for some reason. And it's, it's so just like years. scenes of the boy doing things, always shining a shoe with a baseball mitt in his pocket. Yeah. Um, they also use this trope a lot in the movie of the spinning newspapers. Oh my God. Yo, yo. <laughs> okay. So spinning newspaper Days off calendar are yep. pretty standard, I feel. My favorite flavor of this transition in this movie yeah. is the... And again, like, why choose to touch on this? I have no idea. Because it clearly, like, they had a hard time finding material for this movie. They had two subplots about fully fictional characters that never <laughs> existed. <laughs> and still only got to an hour 18. Um, but one of the transitions that's, like, in this flavor, also early on, pretty close, I think to uh the um calendars um is jackie robinson like 31 year old jackie robinson wearing a basketball uniform just like shooting layups 
and not even showing like it's a cutaway so like he shoots a layup and maybe he missed that layup but they edited it to make sure make it look like he kept scoring baskets and there's just like a basketball score on the screen that's like faded over him that's like ucla and every time he scores it goes up a little bit over the visitors yeah, but they do but that the, for the entire game for like a full minute <laughs> the visitor score never changes over the course of the entire <laughs> <laughs> like jackie robbins like he's just like bugs bunny <laughs> playing against like <laughs> and he's like scoring in the congo line or whatever i guess I mean, the, this, that this was is why jackie robinson Bunny. ripped the movie um it is it is very in keeping with the b movies of the time uh and the the guy who directed this i look into his career he directed like 70 movies and they would just make them in a month for you know 20 bucks that was the other thing that i noticed was that this is one of those movies where the producer gets a bigger like title card than the director does mm-hmm um they just wanted it made. I mean, I, I think the production on this movie is interesting because this was still a time when it was difficult to make a movie about a black person. Sure. Um, so yeah. this isn't this isn't just any cheap B movie. It, it was interesting um, and widely known at the time. And there were a lot of te- attempts to change the movie by the studios. They wanted there to be a scene about a white man teaching Jackie Robinson how to play baseball. And they were like, no, uh, we want this to be an, a, an actual black movie. Um, but... Accordingly, though, for the period, still pretty racist. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm one thing that struck me is that Jackie Robinson uh, has a passage in his book where he talks about um, was it Rockefeller who yeah. called a black person boy? It was Nelson Rockefeller called a group of black people at like a campaign event boys, and Jackie Robinson like I think he like like I I can't remember. I think that like Rockefeller like realized it in the moment maybe and like apologized. And then immediately after, Jackie Robinson was like, you did a good job apologizing, and like it seemed like everybody forgave you, but like you better not do it again. Yeah, he was pretty upset about it, and I think he was eloquent. Um, and again, I, I think this speaks to the way that he evolved in his life. Like, he's he's telling that story, one, from the perspective of him in his 50s, and two, as a person who was much older and that happened. Um, people constantly refer to him as a boy in this movie. Nonstop. There's also a joke early on where his mother is like sewing like a, a track jersey for him, and she, like, gets the, like, the initials of his school are on the track jersey that she's sewing on. And she gets the order wrong, and it's, like, a joke about how she can't read. I can't emphasize enough how bad the beginning of this movie is. So Not just not just in terms of quality, but also in terms of the racism. Um, well, but then yeah. there's also the, the middle of the movie, which concerns a 47-year-old man named Shorty, who's is, too short is- to... <laughs> He's simply not tall enough to hit a baseball, but like he's still on like a a high, like a you know a he's high on the minor AAA league baseball Montreal team. Montreal Royals. He can't hit a baseball. He's too short. But then this conflict is resolved in his second scene, uh, when he gets tall shoes, and then he's able to hit a baseball. An incredible subplot, which I well, love to see. That's also, like, the C-plot of the movie. If the A-plot is Jackie Robinson's advancement through, like, his professional career, and the C-plot yep. is this weird, like, two-scene runner about Shorty, a baseball player who never existed, wearing <laughs> cleats that no one's ever worn before. He, like, he must be some character actor. He was so old. I, I looked him up. He didn't seem like a big notable guy. But, like, people would have got the joke, probably, and been like, oh, this is the short guy who's in all the movies, and his bit is that he's short, and that's it. <laughs> And just like, Maybe. what happens if we put this short 
this short person in various scenarios. He's just in like all the movies. <laughs> but there's like two scenes. There's like two scenes in Casablanca about how he can't reach the olives on the top shelf or something like that. It's so weird. <laughs> um the B plot of this movie concerns a truck driver from Brooklyn who seems to drive to a game like somewhere in the South specifically to like, like why would they come to our concert just to boo us? Like that vibe yeah, um, is, and like, it's also a, a Montreal game, I think. So like this guy from Brooklyn is just like, I want to check out this new person that I can be racist towards. And I like, think the I think you know he's a trucker, so he travels a lot, and he wanted to catch a game and maybe get recruited into the KKK if it so happens. <laughs> yes, so he in the in his first scene he meets some people who are very clearly in the KKK, although they go to great lengths never to say that. It's yep. like a very big nudge nudge wink wink moment in the scene. His second scene concerns him and the Klansmen confronting Jackie Robinson uh, and like threatening to do like a harm to him uh, shortly before some of his Montreal Royal teammates stand up for him and uh, walk towards the bus while the like national anthem, like strains of the national anthem are playing in the score, which is weird because they're playing for a Canadian baseball team. Um, and then he re- returns once Jackie Robinson's in Brooklyn and he like kind of gives him a heckle. And then he's won over in successive scenes by Jackie Robinson's skill at baseball. And by the end of it, he's like, that's my favorite baseball player. Yeah. I mean, I think this speaks to something that we can all relate to, which is how the power of baseball has overcome racism, and there's nothing more to be said about it. But yeah, that's the whole movie. Jackie Robinson, like, the actual facts of Jackie Robinson's life happen, including the movie ends in 1950, it ends in the present day with him appearing before Congress, as he did in real life in 1952, mm-hmm. uh, to speak out against Paul Robeson and the Red Threat. <laughs> True. They didn't pull that a... section of the speech, but yes, he is He's a big Republican, big, huge Republican. He loves America so much, and like I don't, yeah, obviously, like his his politics are not steeped in virulent racism, um, and instead he's like, I built this country and I deserve to reap its benefits, um, uh, and and like the government should stay out of my money, uh, kind of vibe. We didn't talk a lot about his opening a bank, which was a very interesting portion of his career. He opened a bank in Harlem specifically um, because he knew what was true, which is that um, redlining and other racist practices prevented black people from getting loans, which is astute. Yeah, I think overall, like the one thing about Jackie Robinson, and like, I don't know, there are a lot of themes that run through this book. One of the most important ones is that he had a skill and he applied the skill. Um, He was an athlete. He needed to make money. So he made money being an athlete. He had a business acumen. So he made money and affected real political change through his business practices and also like had an acumen for politics and made real sociopolitical change through his political career. Absolutely. Um, and this is like weirdly for being like a pretty thorough autobiography. There's a lot about his, his personal life that he just seems to skip over a lot of it about his own health, but there's a passage in the book where he just casually mentions that he's in charge of a seafood franchise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to which I was I, I was shocked to read that. I said, why why didn't you cover this at all before, <laughs> even in reference? He was like, yeah, I was doing this because I was trying to figure out how to expand my seafood franchise. Uh, Did you so expect a like a whole chapter man. on that? It seems like a big deal. If I owned a seafood franchise, I would put that in my autobiography for more than one sentence. 
Sure. I guess, you know, I don't know. He had wanted to dedicate more time to like his family and stuff. I, it's fine. It was just very funny. <laughs> it was. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So the movie ends, uh, sorry, recapping the film. Yeah. Uh, ver- very much of his biography, uh, uh, including the fact that his brother Mac, um, does it come up in the movie that his brother Mac was a silver medalist in the 1936 Olympics? Uh, no, it only comes up that he set records at UCLA, but he was, so, he was a silver medalist at the Olympics. Silver to Jesse Owens. They both, I believe, broke world records, uh, during that. Yeah, run. they both broke the, or they both broke the Olympic record during the 400 meter sprint. And that was Jackie Robinson's brother. That's pretty wild. Pretty wild. Um, so that's in there. And then there's also, uh, yeah, Shorty and Racist Truck Driver. It's a really That's, short movie. It's available it's on Am- the colorized version is amail- available on co- Amazon Prime. I think it's, it's an interesting historical document. I enjoyed watching it, and as I mentioned, I think like parts of it are really good. I think the baseball in the movie is really impressive for the overall production quality of the movie. It was convincing baseball, but yeah. um, it, I think it was really effective that Jackie Robinson was actually in it because. The baseball players in the movie were probably college ball players or minor leaguers or something because they all looked very competent. But the fact that Jackie Robinson was a major leaguer made his skills really pop in a way that yeah. to a scout would probably be like, you know, overzealous or kind of cheesy. But to the layperson, it just like it worked really well for me. It made him look like an excellent baseball player. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's like, I mean, that's other than like the funny little, you know, it's fun to make fun of B-movies vibe, which yeah. I love. Mm-hmm. Um the main value, the the main value of this as a document for me is that you get to witness his skills as an athlete in like very high fidelity. Yeah, um, that's not something that you can do with Babe Ruth mm-hmm. uh, or Josh Gibson, his contemporary, or anyone before this time. Like this is this is, I mean, it's historically significant. Um, it reminded me a lot of. Um, when I watched Purple Rain, because Prince is not a very good actor, uh, and also the movie is a little corny. Um, it's a fictionalized sort of version of Prince's life, so it also has that in common with Jackie Robinson playing himself. Um, but the main thing that, to me, it has in common is that both Prince and Jackie, neither Prince nor Jackie Robinson are, like, professional actors, and that shows. Yeah. Um, but... They get to do what they actually do for a living. They each get to do this, you know, Prince gets to be a rock star in the movie and Jackie Robinson gets to be a baseball player in the movie. And as a viewer, you get to watch that. And like, they are two of the best at what they did. Um, and it is a gift to be able to, to, to watch it, let alone watch it like with the intimacy that watching a movie allows you to get. Mm hmm. You know, because even like, even at the time, like you could have gone to a baseball game in 1947 and seen Jackie Robinson play from like the bleachers and it would have been all right. But then like, if you get to go to a movie theater and watch that happen, like up close in person, that's huge. That's incredible. Absolutely. This is, I mean, even uh, there are some TV broadcasts, I think, of Jackie Robinson later in his career, but uh, that's much worse quality than than this film. So you're right. This is the best quality footage that you'll get to see of him. Yeah, yeah, and then like after that, there's everybody has good footage of themselves always. Maybe not immediately after that, but pretty shortly after that, you know, like there's no turning back from that. So I don't know. This it's it's a it's a real historical document. 
you can check it out unfortunately on amazon or elsewhere i assume i watched it on youtube accidentally um i would recommend if you have access to amazon prime that you watch it there and here's why this is interesting um this movie actually fell into the public domain because nobody claimed it huh um and the version that i watched one um was in black and white the version you watch on amazon was colorized um yes because they did that in 2004 um but two i it's possible that i missed things because the the publicly available versions and there are many of them the one i watched on youtube as well are like edited together by whoever found it oh um so it's possible that i missed certain things or that certain things were edited incorrectly or in the wrong order um so the amazon version is probably more accurate to what you would have seen in theaters except of course that it's been colorized it's striking it highlights the filmmaking in a way that i'm not sure i would have noticed if it were in black and white like those few shots that i sent you are like incredibly like well composed shots Mm -hmm. um and it's very striking to see them in full color um jackie robinson there's like the first shot that i sent you is jackie and his wife on their way to jackie's first spring training and jackie robinson is sat uh in like a very beautifully done wide shot uh on the back of a set that's made to look like a bus uh he is like in the center of the shot wearing this beautiful yellow suit uh and like is directly under and framed framed by like uh you know back of the bus for people of color, colored people only, and then, like, all these, like, white people around him. Um, really cool. Also, another one of, like, some white dudes in the dugout. Um, yeah, but it's a, it's a really nice shot. It looks really Overall, beautiful. F- fun to look at. Uh, fun to laugh at. Um, I really enjoyed uh, learning about Jackie Robinson. Yeah, like I said, I think this was such a fruitful two weeks for me, uh, reading mm-hmm. this book, watching this movie, and, and doing the, the extra research that I did. Um, and if you want to endeavor yourself to do any of those things, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, man. Um, maybe I'll watch 42 after this. Maybe I'll have a different perspective on that movie. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, but it was not uh, 100 minutes, which discouraged me from <laughs> doing it. All right, let's wrap up the show then. Uh, all right, that's going to do it for us this week on Tater Tots. We're going to wrap it up this week with a snake fact for you. Hi, Henry. Um Henry heard about snakes, and he wants to hear the snake fact because he hates them so much. Um, <clears throat> contrary to popular myth, it is impossible to suck the venom out of a snake bite. In fact, doing so only compounds the danger by increasing the risk of infection. You know, this is one of these things that's just, now that I hear that, is very obvious as something that would probably be a bad move. Um, mm-hmm. But it just seems to make so much sense that, you you know, it's it, the venom's just right there. Why not just suck it out? Uh, cause by the time that you suck it out, it's already way deep in your bloodstream. Yeah. It's not actually right there. It's, and you'd have to remove it's... like an enormous <laughs> amount of blood with your, with your sucking action. <laughs> Every time you watch it in the movie and it's just like the da- daintiest little suck and then they get out and they spit nothing out. I don't know. Uh, right. Not okay, enough that's... blood to remove the venom. Certainly not. Not even any blood at all. You would think that they would. Anyways, uh, that's going to do it for us this week on Tater Tots. You can, uh, as always donate to baseball for all. Um, that's a charitable organization that gets girls involved in youth baseball initiatives around the country. It's very important. Um, there's a link to that in our show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at Tater Tots Pod. You can like us on Facebook behind the Facebook URL slash Tater Tots Pod. You can email us tatertotspod at gmail.com. Uh, this week, um, we will be streaming, I swear, come hell or high water, we will stream this week, uh, on twi- uh, twitch.tv slash Tater Tots Pod, 7 p.m. Be there, be square, 
uh, both things, not or both. You have to. You're you. We're watching. You're watching a stream of baseball video. Games. I was gonna say. I do think it's. <laughs> if you're there, you're probably square. You don't have to worry there, about it. Be there and be square. And on our next podcast, we're gonna be uh, reading uh, "The Arm" by Jeff Passan, uh, vaunted modern day baseball writer. Um, is he vaunted or is he one of the guys that we love to hate? No, he's pretty vaunted. Okay, great. I love a vaunted writer. Um, so that's next time. Uh, and until then, I will talk to you later. Bye. Possible.